Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. What Was That Like? contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is the show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Vincent lives and works in Chicago as a photojournalist. He takes a lot of pictures, and a lot of those pictures include crime scenes. 
In his line of work, he's used to getting the call and going to where the news is happening. But there was one night when he didn't have to go anywhere. The crime scene was just outside his front door. That was the night 17-year-old Michael Patton was gunned down during a thunderstorm. Vincent heard the shots and ran outside while his wife called 911. The teenager had been shot in the chest and in the head, and he died while Vincent held his hand. We talked about Vincent's perspective on this experience, both as a photographer and journalist and as a father. An experience like this is certainly something that none of us ever wants to go through. If you'd like to contact Vincent or see some of his photography, you can do so by checking out a project he's currently working on called Lost Americana. You can see that at lostamericana.com. Vincent also wrote an article for the Chicago Sun-Times about this incident. I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash zero seven. And now here's my conversation with Vincent. All right, Vincent, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. I know, and we're going to talk about this a little bit. You are a uh, photojournalist. Have you, in your work, have you ever witnessed a death before? You know, I haven't seen I kind of death up close in my work like this. I've been to crime scenes before. There's definitely been places where I, you know, was at a shooting or a fire and and somebody had passed away. But usually getting this close to, um, you know, a, a body, I guess, is uh, is not something that's, you know, normal. I mean, you know, police tapes usually pretty far back, uh, you know, in this situation, it just happened to be my front doorstep. So it was kind of hard to push me back any farther than I already was. Exactly. Yeah. Before we get into actually what happened that night, can you tell us a little bit about your your neighborhood? Uh, what, what What's that like? What's your street like? Uh, my street, uh, well, at the time it was pretty quiet. Uh, you know, it's, it's still pretty quiet. I, I don't live on that block anymore. I actually live, I still live in the same neighborhood. So I didn't leave because of this. I'm, I'm actually farther into my neighborhood. I was on the outskirts of it now. Uh, you know, it's, it's a working class, uh, African-American neighborhood for the most part. Uh, it's called Bronzeville. It's on the uh, South side of Chicago. That's where I live. I, you know, it's a little quiet tree lined one way street that, you know, doesn't get much traffic. You know, the middle of the day, you know, middle of the afternoon on a week, uh, parking is real easy to get there because, you know, everybody's at work. You know, it's it's not the you, know, you hear a lot about the south side and it's it's not the same south side that, you know, is on, you know, the nightly news when we have a spree of murders or something like that. You know, I, you hear a lot about Chicago and, and, you know, I'm in Florida. I've been to Chicago a few years ago, but you hear a lot about the so much violence and and gunfire and everything. Is it are you are people there kind of a, a mentality or a constant state of fear or what? what is what's the mentality of living in that area? You know, I mean, there's here's the thing. There's there's roughly the south side of Chicago is huge. Uh, and Chicago just in general is huge. I mean, it's the third largest city population wise uh, area. I don't know how big it is, but it's not like everybody makes it out to be. There's like I said, it's a working class. A lot of people are there. They're going they're going to their jobs during the day. Um, there's employment is is pretty good. Um you know, what happens is there's, there's roughly, and statistically, I'm not, you know, I'm not on the police payroll, so I don't know about this, but it's been said that there's about eight neighborhoods out of like the 55 neighborhoods in the city that are contributing about 75% of the homicides or crime. 
And I'm not in one of those neighborhoods. Now, a couple of those neighborhoods are on the south side. Uh, a few more of them are on the far west side of Chicago. Um, and that's where most of the, you know, the, the murders and the shootings are happening. And it's all targeted, gang-related. So, you know, on a daily basis, no, I, I walk in and out of my house. I walk up and down my block. I mean, I grew up outside of the city. I have a, a blonde white mother who will walk around with a stroller pushing my kids through the neighborhood. And, you know, she's not fearful. And once you come here and you kind of see it and you know the people who live in the block, yeah, you know, it's not this crime ridden. I, I never worry about getting mugged or, you know, robbed or anything like that. I mean, I, I do worry about it. You can't live in a big city like this and not worry about something like that. But like, it's not a constant fear that I have. And this is coming from, you know, a white guy in a predominantly black neighborhood. And the other thing I, I like to tell people is you'll hear stuff about shootings that happen. Like, oh, aren't you worried? There was this, you know, like 12 people got shot over the weekend or, you know, I think this last weekend was pretty bad. We had like 64 shootings and I think it was 12 people that died two weekends ago. And yeah, but like some of the, the majority of those are happening down in say like the 111th block. And I'm roughly at 50th, uh, which is going to put you... I mean, it, it's, the, it's a difference between somebody being worried about crime downtown Chicago when they live in like the far north burbs. The south side of Chicago folded over is, is so big that you would literally, you know, a, a crime like that is, it's, it's like talking about crime in another city and being worried that it's coming to your neighborhood. So I mean, there are shootings that happen in my neighborhood, obviously. Um, that's why I'm on this podcast. But, you know, there are shootings that happen in other parts of the city. And, you know, I'm more worried about you know, my son's hanging out at a friend's house and their parents have a gun that I am worried about them getting shot on the street right now. That's, that's more of a concern. Yeah, it's, it's like probably in any large city with set with that many people, there's certain areas that you want to avoid just from common sense, because that's where bad stuff happens. Yeah. And, and there's a whole podcast there about, you know, why it is just that area or why these particular areas, but no, exactly. It was just some places like, you know, you're if you don't you don't have business there and you know, if you're walking around looking like a victim, chances are you're you're going to get turned into a victim sometimes. But yeah, for the most part, if you you know, living in this neighborhood on the south side, and there's a bunch of neighborhoods like that on the south side that you know, and we've it's been great because it's allowed us, I think, to stay in the city and live in a bigger house than I think some of our friends on the north side could have ever moved in because it's the value for property versus what you have. I mean, we can go out and do a lot around here and it's, you know, it's, it's nice. All right. Well, let's talk about what happened that night. If you can just kind of take us through that. I understand there was a pretty bad storm happening. Is that right? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was, it was the end of June. We had uh, just had my son's, my oldest son's fifth birthday party uh, earlier that day. And so we were kind of still cleaning up the house and, it was a cool night. It was, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was still June in Chicago. So, you know, let's be honest, it could have snowed if it, if we, if we were lucky. And, uh, so we had the windows open. There was a good breeze coming through and the breeze was coming through nicely because there was a storm rolling in and the storm hit and it was coming from the North from what I remember. So we had closed the windows in the back of the house, which faced North, but the front windows, which are South facing were still open because the rain was not even coming in. It was blowing in the opposite direction. So we had no problem. And I had been walking, I think down into the basement or down to the first floor. And I had heard this giant, like crack, crack, crack noise. And 
I we have a tree that's out in our front yard, and I thought maybe because the wind was really gusting that uh, you know it, it had broke a branch and then it, you know fell down. And I was like, well, my truck's parked underneath there. I'm going to look out the window and make sure that you know my truck didn't get smashed or you know that nothing's going on. And then, um, but there was no tree branch in in the in the gutter laying on the street. There was, however, a, a body of what I thought was a man. Uh, laying on his back in essentially a, a puddle of water, uh, a giant puddle. Cause like I said, it had been raining torrentially that night. And he was there by himself. Yeah. At the time he was there by himself and I had saw somebody else that was running across through a neighbor's yard. They had hopped, they had the hop two fences, one to get into the yard and then the other to, uh, you know, get out of the yard into the alley behind their house. And they were, they were yelling for help and they were saying like, my brother's been shot. My brother's been shot. And you know, that's, that helped me piece together what was going on really quick. Like it wasn't, he didn't get struck by lightning. He didn't get hit by a tree branch, you know, or hit by a car. He, you know, the person that I I saw laying out there was shot. And, you know, so my first thing I did was I went back to my closet. Um, I grabbed uh, actually a, photographic, uh, like weatherproof raincoat that I have that, you know, has all sorts of pockets for photography stuff, a flashlight. And, you know, I went out there barefoot. I mean, I was getting ready for bed. I was in some like gym shorts and a t-shirt. So I went out and started, uh, you know, went up to the, to what I found out later would be a 17 year old kid and was just kind of checking him out with a flashlight, you know, trying to talk to him, like, you know, checking his pulse on his, on his wrist and then his neck. And I, I wasn't really getting anything. You didn't call 911 already? So I had, uh, I didn't call 911. That was actually my wife okay. who was calling. She had saw it and, you know, I was, you know, I went out and she made the call. How did she realize what was going on? Did you tell her what you saw or? She, she was right next to the window. Uh, she was in her bedroom, which had the windows open. So when she heard it, she, the sound didn't echo throughout the house like it did for me. And she knew right away that it was gunshots. Oh, okay. So I came up talking about like a tree branch and she's looking at me like, what are you dumb? Like it, that was gunshots. <laughs> like clearly that was gunshots. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with cook unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. 
Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. So yeah, then I was like, you know, there's, there was a body and I think she could see it out of the window where I was, you know, on, I was on the first floor, you know, kind of yelling down, down to her. And so I went out the door after I turned off, we had a, I think we got a, we had a home alarm on. So I turned that off and went out there and then she was making the call. And, and I remember she's always had this recurring nightmare where she, uh, she calls 911 because something, you know, whatever bad is happening. And she just gets on hold or like the phone just keeps ringing. And I think she had said it went up to like 19 rings that night before she actually got through to 911. So she was in this whole thing where like, there's this body of a person out in front of our house I'm calling 911. It's nighttime and it's not going through. And she was, she really had to question whether or not like this was really happening or if she was in a nightmare. Wow. Yeah. So a little bit surreal. Man. Okay. So you went outside and it's still pouring rain. Yeah. Okay. It's absolutely just, it's a downpour. The wind, I think maybe it died down a little bit at that point, but eh, not even because I mean, like I said, I just thought a tree branch cracked. So, but you know, how the weather was at that point was not really in my mind. I just knew it was wet and I needed a raincoat. And, but like I said, I didn't even put shoes on. So I was literally wading in like, it was ankle deep water because we're, it's, it's a one way street. So there's literally only enough room for one car to go down kind of at a time. And then cars are parked in the left and right. And that little parking area where, you know, the gutters usually and everything drains was, was full with, it was ankle deep water. I mean, there was that much water that night and it had been coming down for so long that, you know, it just built up and he was, he was floating in the water for the most part. Like his, his legs were a little bit out, but like his back and his head were, you know, kind of bobbing up and down a little bit in the water. And he, he started to gasp for air, you know, right around the time that I was checking his pulse cause he really wasn't moving. And, um, you know, then he started gasping. And at that point, you know, I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, this guy shot. And I think my wife had grabbed some towels and she might've been looking for, um, cause she's in medicine. So she has, uh, you know, one of those like respirator, uh, I forget what they call it, but for mouth to mouth. And she was looking for some rubber gloves too, which I don't think she found either of, uh, you know, in the rush that night. Cause you know, I think there are more in our car, but either way, it's, you know, it's not something you're expecting on a daily basis. No, but so she was, she was thinking about what needed to be done 
yeah. at, at, and w- what were you, and what were you doing at that time while you were there? Well, I will say, and this is where the, um, you know, the photojournalism kind of kicked in. Like the first thing I thought when I walked outside my door and I saw this body was there's this click that goes into my head where I'm like, Oh, this is a crime scene. This is news. And you know, my first thought is like, do I grab my camera and start photographing this? Because this is, this is news. This is my job. This is kind of what I do where she's like getting ready to like try to save somebody. I'm like, do I take pictures of this? And I had a really great photojournalism teacher in college. His name was John H. White. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist. Uh, used to shoot for the Chicago Sun-Times. And he, you know, had this thing where he's like, look, there's, there's going to be times in your career where you have to be human first. And then you're a journalist second. And then you're a photographer third. So, you know, it's, you got to go out there and if you're the only one there and somebody needs help, it's not your job to report on it or take pictures of it. It's your job to kind of help. And, and that's kind of what that, that turned out. I, I, I don't even think I looked back. I just, the, 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 the thought process took me about as long as it did to explain it here in my head. Mm-hmm. But that process, you know, cause your brain works so quick was, was pretty fast. And right, so right. I had paused maybe for like a half second and then made my way down the stairs and went out and immediately kind of started checking for the pulse, grabbing his hand, telling him like, Hey, the police are on their way. You know, the ambulance is on the way, man. You just need to hold, hold through, you know, hang on there. And at that point is when his, uh, when the other guy that was with him came back and, uh, so did uh, a female friend of theirs. Okay. And how, what was their involvement? Were they, was that, you said at the beginning, someone said they shot my brother. Was this the brother? That is the, the one part that, you know, I had actually, I have talked to this person. His name is Michael Patton. Uh, the, the man who was, or the, the kid who was shot. Um, he was a foster child. So the person, the other guy that was there was not, I think an actual blood brother, but you know, they, I don't know what the relationship was. I, I never knew anything about this kid before or after this. Um, you know, I never even knew the, the kid that was shot. Like he wasn't somebody that I was familiar with from the neighborhood. Okay. But he, uh, yeah, so he, he came back. And the only thing that I've learned since then, and obviously because I was right there, was whoever this, this kid was, he was also there with Michael um, when the shooting happened because he was the one who ran away and then he was the one who came back. Uh, the girl... I, you know, I, I don't remember. And I just remember, so I'm standing there and it was one of those things. And if there's one thing I regret about the whole situation is while I was standing there holding his hand and like telling him to hang out and, you know, I'd started to unzip his shirt. He had like a fleece hoodie on or something like that. And I was opening it up to kind of see where he was shot and see if we could kind of stop any bleeding. You know, his friend kept walking back and forth, like, you know, they shot my brother, you know, just kind of, he was almost in like a state of shock, which I'm assuming, you know, between your friend just getting shot. And also I believe the, the kid was shot as well. He was grazed in the arm. You know, I'm sure the adrenaline and your, your brain starts going in, in separate directions. And so, yeah, the, the only thing I could really say, you know, he came up and one of the first things he did when he got back, which kind of upset me a little bit, but he came back and there was $20 bills that were floating in the water next to them. So, uh, he had picked up some of that money and and then was kind of going back and forth with the, you know, they shot my brother. But I was back to the one thing I regret was while I was there holding his hand, uh, there was a part of me that was, I wanted to tell this kid like, hey, 
this is your brother. Like you need to come down here and talk to him because he might not make it. He needs to hear your voice. You need to kind of say your piece just in case this doesn't, you know, end the way we hope it does. And, you know, I never, I never kind of went up and like said that to him. I would just, I kind of stayed there and focused on the kid because it was clearly nobody else was. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I think some of the neighbors had started to come out and the rain had died down just a little bit, but you know, there, there started to be a crowd that was gathering. And your wife was on, was she still on with nine one one? I mean, were they telling her to do CPR or? Yeah, they, she came out at that point. Um, and I, you know, he was, like I said, he was still breathing a little bit gasping mostly, um, she had come out with some towels and bandages and stuff that we had. Um, but you know, like I said, when I had opened the wound, you know, opened up his shirt and saw, he basically had a, the best way to describe it is it looked like a belly button. He had like a new belly button somewhere around like his left side of his chest. If I, if I'm correct. And it was just this like fleshy white part of his skin that you, you could see where the bullet went in. So there's a really good possibility, and this is something that's always kind of haunted my wife a little bit, that he was sitting there in that pool of water, and if he had an exit wound on the back end, and every time he's gasping, there's a good possibility that he might have drowned before he actually mm. died of anything else. Although the one kind of solace my wife has in not feeling bad about that is that uh, apparently he also had a bullet wound to the head. So it said one to the chest in the the police report and one to the head as well, and he had kind of short... Uh, you know, medium length, you know, kind of tight curls, uh, you know, on his hair. So, you know, we were looking for a, a secondary, you know, we had looked at his head too, just to make sure that he wasn't shot there, um, but never saw any kind of bullet wound up there. So wherever it was, I, you know, like I said, it was dark, everything was wet, which made everything even darker and it washed away any kind of blood. There was, there was literally no blood out there until the next morning when the the sun came out and you could see where the body was laying the, you know, from the night before, because the water had started to drain uh, later in the evening when the, uh, you know, the ambulance came about four or five minutes later. So even if you would have seen the, uh, an exit wound on his back, it, there was no, there's really no place to pull him or drag him to that would be dry. Uh, right? You could have dragged. Well, he was in a pool of water. I mean, he was, he was in at least a good three inches of water. So we could have dragged him up onto the grass, Okay, which, you know, yeah, I mean, he, or dragged him further out into the street either way. But, you know, we, you know, like I said, when you know, we had three, maybe four minutes out there with him before the paramedic showed up. So it's, you know, and, and you're not an EMT. No, and I'm not an EMT and she's not an EMT either. She works in dermatology. So she's used to like, you know, if he had a rash, she would have, you know, she'd have been really good at treating his rash or, you know, uh, psoriasis, but you know, bullet wounds, you know, she worked as a, a nurse, you know, for training in like an emergency room back when she was, you know, in college But that, at that point, I think it was maybe like a decade before. So now in, in what you wrote about this, it, I seem to recall that by the time the ambulance and the police got there, he had already died. Yeah, that was pretty much it. I mean, I think that, you know, like I said, there was some time when I was there, I wasn't holding his hand the entire time. Obviously I was, there was some other things I was doing. I went back in the house at one point to get something else and then, or tell my wife like, Hey, grab this. Um, I know one of the first neighbors that showed up was in the apartment building was right next to me. And I had already looked up when I, when I went out there, probably about 30 seconds after I was out there and I was holding his hand and I was looking around because, you know, somebody just got shot. And so, 
I, I, you know, I'm not a cop or, you know, I've never been in the army, uh, you know, but I'm pretty well aware that like the, the most dangerous place to be is around, you know, right after somebody got shot. Cause you never know. Is that, was the guy that left that said, is, is he coming back with a gun for retribution? Right. Is the person who shot this kid coming back to make sure that they did the job. And so I'm looking around to make sure that, you know, whatever happens, you know, I'm well protected at the same time. Well, that's the first thing when, you know, in, in EMT training, that's the first thing they, they tell you when you're approaching a scene, it, your first question is, is the scene safe? Because if it's not yeah. safe, they're not going to go in. They're going to let the police go in first. And and that is, you know, there was part of me when I was, like I said, my, my first thing was not, is it safe? My first thing is, do I take a picture? My second thing was like, no, okay, I got to help somebody. And then right. somewhere along those lines was like, am I going to be okay out here? You know, and I was the only one on the block. I was the first one out there because the, like I said, his friend had left and it was just me and this kid in the rain. Now, at some point in this, in this uh, scenario, you noticed a gun lying that's, on yeah. the ground. I was about ready to get to that. Yeah. And that's when I was saying like the guy from the apartment, he came out and I was like, Daryl, I'm like, stand over that gun. I'm like, nobody touches that. And he's a bigger guy. So he's probably about like, you know, six foot, like, you know, 220 pounds. I was just like, nobody touches that gun. Like, you know, I, I didn't know if it was the one that shot him. I didn't know, you know, what it was. Uh, apparently the story goes that it was his gun and it had jammed. So, um, the whole, the whole backstory of this is, uh, unfortunately what happened was he was a foster kid. He, you know, actually grew up in a, a pretty decent suburb, or at least he graduated from high school in a pretty decent suburb of Chicago. And, uh, he had just relocated with a new foster parent or something like that, you know, I guess for like his last year or last six months. And, you know, he had been in and out of trouble, but they thought he was kind of out of it, but she was a little bit older and wasn't able to kind of control a 17 year old boy, um, like you should be able to. And so he had been out apparently sticking up, uh, the weed man. And I don't know if you know what the weed man is, but the, that's the person that you call up to, you know, come and hand deliver your drugs to you. Now, um, it's not, you don't you don't go to houses anymore to do it. They drive around in cars with like a small little amount. So if they do get pulled over, they don't do any serious jail time. And so you call this guy up and he came out and they had been robbing, you know, this person or other people, I guess, other weed men in the neighborhood. And so this time, you know, he decided to do it, I guess, in the middle of a rainstorm and these people were ready for him. And so he tried to stick him up and somebody shot him from the back of uh, what I believe was a minivan from the all accounts of the, uh, the friend that was there. Hmm. And yeah, that's, that's how it went down. He, uh, he basically tried to stick him up. They shot him and, and now he is, he's dead, unfortunately. So in, in reading some of the news stories, it, you know, we, I, you know, we, I didn't know any of that backstory. It, it seemed more like it was just like a random drive by, or maybe gang related retribution shooting or something like that. But this was just, nope. uh, just over some, uh, marijuana money. Sounds like pretty much. And that's what I said. Like, that's why, you know, when I went out there, the kid was floating in the water, you know, gasping for air. And there was a bunch of $20 bills floating around him. So he had either just decided to rob them or, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure how it, you know, that all went down, but there was, that's the, the, uh, the word on the street from some of the neighbors that I heard was that he was trying to stick up the weed guy and the weed guy got him and, hmm. uh, you know, almost got his friend too. So, wow. Of course, that's not uh, the results of an official police investigation. So, you know, who knows if that's 
accurate or not. But sure, this is. Uh, I will say that uh, <laughs> that is rumor, speculation from the neighborhood. But I will also say the neighborhood is usually pretty spot on. So uh, mm-hmm. it's oh, it's, it's certainly uh, a viable explanation. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Yeah. It seems to be, they've been an accurate source on more than one occasion for, for things that have happened. The word on the street. Yeah. The word on the street. Do you know anything about what happened afterward or have you talked to anyone that uh, was maybe directly involved as part of his family or anything? Um, what I did have is a couple of months after uh, the article was written and it was, uh, you know, it's a front page article on the Sun Times. It, uh, you know, it got a little bit of attention. So, I, you know, I'd had some people that would, you know, got in touch with me. Uh, I think a local alderman had written to me, you know, through email uh, about it. Uh, I had a woman who had done a book of poems about um, shooting victims in the uh, the city. So she had gone around and talked to people who had, um, you know, known the victims before they were shot. And she published this book of, of poems. And she had actually sent me a copy of the book because she had written one about Michael based on the article that I wrote. Uh, and the other thing that happened was, is he had an aunt that I believe was from Ohio who, um, who got my number somehow. She might've got my email and I gave her my number. I can't quite remember. We had a, a lengthy conversation and I kind of filled her in on, you know, she wanted to know like exactly what happened, you know, what, what were his last moments like? Cause you know, she remembered him as a baby and I think it was her sister's child. Um, you know, and I'm not entirely sure. I think her mom, you know, I'm not going to go into whatever. It's a fuzzy conversation about what her mother or what happened to his mother. But, you know, he, you know, so she, you know, it was, it was her nephew and, you know, she was really sad and she just wanted to know what really happened. Like, what was it like, you know, and she was very grateful that she knew that he died and that, that somebody that me and my wife were there uh, when he passed. And that's one, one thing I, I do want to say too. I know often because I'm the journalist and I'm the one that writes the story, a lot of people, forget my wife was there for a lot of this too. So like I was standing by his side and, and she was there for a lot of it too. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't just me. (laughs) Right. So the aunt that called, it was, it was mainly for closure for her. Yeah. 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 And you know, as, as I, I've got a couple of nieces and nephews now too. I have a younger sister that's got kids and I, I, yeah, I, I, I would be really devastated if one of them had passed and, you know, my sister wasn't around to kind of take care of them. I would, I would need that closure as well. I right. Think. Right. Looking back on this, is there anything that you would have done differently? You know, not really. Like I said, the, the only regret I really had is that I never told his friend that like, you need to come down here because I could see from the situation that it was a good chance he wasn't going to pull through. Even if the ambulance got there in like the next 30 seconds, you know, this, this, the bullet wound that I saw in his chest was close enough to his heart that, and I could just tell by the way this kid, I mean, he never closed his eyes. He, he was lying on his back, staring up and the rain was coming down. And, and I don't think he blinked at all. I mean, it was just, he, he, you know, I think I said somewhere in the article, it was almost like he was scared to close his eyes, but you know, there's a possibility he never heard a word that I said. I mean, he could have been just, you know, barely functioning on like, you know, a body level at that point, like just kind of instinct or, you know, your what's left of your brain taking over and trying to like, you know, pull you through. Cause I guess, you know, the, the police report said that he was shot in the head too. And I never saw that. So he didn't have like a gaping bullet wound in his head, but you know, he, it seemed like he was, he was there, but you know, you never know. Yeah. 
You know, seeing something like this personally up close, uh, you, you're a father, you have kids. Ha- has this changed your outlook on life in any way? You know, I, I want to say yes, but um, I kind of had the outlook before. I mean, I, uh, you just, if you pay attention in life, there's, there's too many people that have something bad happen to them. And, you know, even since, you know, like I said, it was my son's fifth birthday party at that point. And, you know, there's, there's stories that I'd heard. There was a one that really stuck with me. I think when he was little, uh, was that, a there was a local, not local, but like in the Chicago area, there was a na- uh, daycare that had a child who, you know, he was crying and being like really upset or whatever. And I guess the, the daycare worker just got like really fed up with him kind of having his little tantrums or whatever. And then, you know, kind of pick him up and like shook him and like threw him down to the ground or something like that. And he stopped crying and kind of whimpered. And I remember the the story of this, and I don't know if they got it from the video or from a personal account, but he picked up his favorite teddy bear. He went over into like his little sleeping area, like where they were supposed to lay down and go to bed. And then he died. And, you know, from like some sort of like brain crack, you know, like some sort of something that happened to his brain. And it was just, so every day that I have with my kids, I, I, I mean, I, same with my wife, like I, they leave the house and I, it's morbid, but I act like they might not come back every time. And, you know, that's kind of how I've always lived. So this didn't change that too much, but it just, it really put it front and center, I think, in in one of those things. I mean, you just, you know, it's watching somebody die right there in front of you. I mean, I've been around people who have died before, but I think this was the first time, this is definitely the first time that I was holding somebody's hand. I mean, I've, I've seen people, you know, it's not the first dead body I've seen, that's for sure, but it's the first time somebody's physically expired while I was standing next to them. Yeah. It really, when you, I'm sure probably later that night after everything had died down, you really have to think, wow, what, what just happened? You know? And, and I did, it was, and, and that's where the photos came in. I mean, that's part of how the story came about. I mean, it was, you know, it happened about 1030 at night, uh, 11, you know, 1045, I think by 1115, you know, like I said, the, the police showed up about five, you know, minutes after, you know, the, uh, you know, the, we called 911 and it, uh, you know, they started putting up the police tape and it was, it was really surreal. I mean, I remember being in almost a numb state. I was very calm during it. Uh, I kind of go into like action mode when, when things starts hitting the fan, it's just part of who I am. But the, the come down afterwards, like the, I wouldn't want to call it post-traumatic stress or anything like that, but there was definitely, there was some shock and awe of, of what had just happened. And I, I reconciled with that by going and doing what I'm used to doing, which is I, I went, picked up my camera. I opened my front window, stepped out of my front porch and, and I started taking pictures of a crime scene. And I put myself back in that photojournalism thing instead of, you know, somebody who had just held the hand of a person who had just died. And, and I think the lens helped me uh, put the closure on that situation where, you know, I don't know if I had just been a normal person, I think it still might haunt me to this day, but that, that camera put me on the other side of what I just went through. And I think that, you know, it was like instant therapy in a way. You know, I hear something like this. I, you know, I think you got to give credit to law enforcement because what is so traumatic for you and I, it's just another day at work for them, especially in a, in a, in a city or a large population where this kind of thing happens all the time. 
That's- yeah, it's 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 hard. I mean, it's uh, you know, I know one of the things that you know I'd, I'd advocate for is I've heard police officers who have picked up like the day shift because uh, somebody was on vacation after working the night shift and they go back into the neighborhood and it's a completely different neighborhood to them. Hmm. There's new people they see. It's more vibrant. It's more alive. And, you know, but because of unions and seniority, sometimes the guys, you know, they work those night shifts first before they get the nice day shift that where the crime doesn't happen. And I think it, it really hardens you after a while. And so it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough gig. And, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I don't, don't want to sit here and try to tell anybody how to do their job. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we wrap it up here, I, as you, as a photojournalist, you've got a project you're working on. And so I wanted to, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, besides going out and shooting, uh, you know, news stories for, you know, the papers and magazines, uh, you know, in the city, uh, one of the things that I've been doing for going on 23 years now is I've been doing a documentary project where I uh, kind of get away from the uh, the city and I'm out in uh, rural America. I've been documenting um, uh, basically the abandoning of rural America, essentially population decline in small towns, specifically when it comes to like uh, farming and ranching areas and about how, you know, essentially since the end of World War II, there's been this kind of mass exodus from a lot of these areas and there's slowly but surely they are, uh, you know, kind of fading away. Uh, and it's uh, called Lost Americana. It's, you know, it started off as just me taking pictures of like old abandoned barns because I thought they were, you know, with the, the sunsets and the the farm fields that they were pretty. But then the journalist in me kicked in and, and I started asking questions about why they were uh, they were out there. And the Lost Americana project, uh, it, it covers a lot of that, uh, you know, what's going on. And I've got a pretty regular Instagram feed and I kind of blog on lostamericana.com about, you know, some of the stuff I see and and why this is happening. And, you know, then always the biggest question is, is there a way to stop it from happening, which is sadly, possibly no. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of like my, uh, my side project, my, my baby. <laughs> so, so people can find that at the website is lostamericana.com. That's correct. And just about any social media, if you just do the at Lost Americana or backslash Lost Americana, all one word, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, it, it all shows up there. I've tried to kind of make sure I lock down the uh, the name so nobody else steals it and starts something else on me. Right, right. Cool. All right. So if someone wants to contact you, that's the best way they can get in touch with you is going through that uh, website. Yeah. Yep. Lostamericana.com. All right. All right, Vincent. Well, what a traumatic thing to go through and to witness something like this. But uh, uh, at least you were there and later on we're able to document it. And the pictures that you took or some of the pictures that you took of the scene will be on the uh, show in the show notes for this uh, when this goes live. So people can go there and see that as well as the link to your project. And uh, thanks again. Thanks very much for sharing your story. Not a problem, Scott. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking me on. It was uh, interesting to talk about again. Thanks for listening to this episode. My goal for each show is to introduce you to people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you want to help support the show, you just need to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. You can click on any of the subscribe buttons on the website, which is whatwasthatlike.com. You'll see all the links right there at the top where you can subscribe directly to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, 
Stitcher Radio, or on whatever app you use to catch your podcasts. And you'll see there are also links to Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow us there, and I hope you do. And if you really want to connect with me and get in on the discussion with other listeners to this show, you can join our private Facebook group. You can find that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash Facebook. And of course, you can always email me directly at scott at whatwasthatlike.com or just go to the website and click on contact. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode or a previous episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next show where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like?